But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us from Portland, Oregon, in his fortified bunker, Jason Wilson. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thanks for having me on again. How's things going in ISO? Yeah, not too bad. I am well supplied. I am healthy so far. I am a person who has worked from home pretty much for a number of years now. Normally, I would intersperse my working from home with travel to places where there are stories, and that's clearly not possible now. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do what I can in terms of reporting on stuff, and I'm actually finding that there are a lot of, you know, if you, if you know your way around Google, there there's actually a lot of material out there that I don't think people know that they're making public. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and And so it's still possible to report from home. But yeah, I mean, we in the state of Oregon, at the, at the level of government, mostly we have to deal with um, incompetence rather than, you know, outright drooling sadism, as, as you find in some other states. And so they locked down pretty efficiently, pretty early. People seem to have been complying with that. And for now, it looks like Oregon might have dodged the bullet that hit uh, the state of Washington just over the border. So that's that's good. But, you know, I mean, obviously everyone needs to sort of like maintain their vigilance and keep looking out for one another and hope that the federal government doesn't uh, <laughs> somehow intervene and make things worse. So with the reason we've got you on is because obviously there is this public health crisis uh, globally and you've written a few things recently. So we thought we'd get you on to talk about uh, NRL Island. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm obviously supportive of NRL Island, and I think that um, uh, it could be a beacon of light in uh, a very dark time. It's, it's, it's as far as I'm concerned, it's an AFL world. So if the NRL wants an island, they can, they can have an island. <laughs> well, where, 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 where is the, where is the innovation from, um, uh, from AFL on this? I mean, where's their island, or, or I don't know, maybe the desert? They could go to the desert. I don't know, something. But you know, whoever solves, whichever sport solves this problem, will be the only sport being broadcast for for a number of months. So you know, um, let's let's hope it's uh, let's hope it's the good guys. You've you've also written a few things about how the right is reacting to the uh, coronavirus crisis, which is why we actually have you on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wrote something earlier in the week about how the far right is reacting. And also something about how uh, that was just published on Tuesday about how uh, the the right in general is reacting. Although it seems there's a fair bit of crossover these days. Yeah. Uh, what 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 have you found when you were looking to how the far right is responding to this current situation? So so I think that I think that it's possible for crises to. Uh, accelerate things that were already happening sometimes. Video conferencing was at some kind of rudimentary stage, and I, I'm sure by the end of this, every university and company and you know club or whatever is going to have video conferencing pretty nailed. But on the right, it's accelerated a pretty 
big set of fishes. And actually, I've just got something out in Guardian Australia. It talks about three main paths that I can see the right taking out of this. There is a fair bit of either outright denialism or, you know, minimizing this whole thing. And that's a lot of that is on the Christian right or particular conspiracy-minded parts of the right that think it's all a psyop or, you know, just MAGA people who, you know, don't want this to be kind of blamed on the president. And then, and then there are people who, I mean, Scott Morrison is a case in point here, people who grudgingly <laughs> abandon the sort of doctrine of austerity that they've nurtured for a lifetime and, um, you know, actually just sort of do something uh, however inadequate and belated to kind of address the emergency, you know, realizing that, that, that neoliberal capitalism is actually not a particularly resilient system and, and that they're just going to have to kind of do what they can to ensure that their economies and nation states kind of survive this, this problem. And, and then there are people, I think, who, and a lot of these people are, are either, you know, they're people from Steve Bannon, right, basically, right out into the neo-Nazi Right, who are actually who have actually been taking this stuff seriously for a long time, a lot of the time. I mean, Bannon started doing special podcasts on on the pandemic in late January when almost no one in um, you know corporate media was talking about that. That you know, people were still fixated on the primaries and 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 uh, impeachment. And and these guys have taken it seriously. And you've also got you know farther out to the right, you've got accelerationists, eco-fascists who have been kind of predicting or anticipating this kind of crisis and, and certainly have, have accepted that it's real. And, and, and those kind of groups, I guess, from, from Bannon Wright are the, are, the, are the biggest concern for me at the moment because they're actually looking to ex- exploit this crisis that they clearly recognise, that, that, you know, they clearly recognise the seriousness of this crisis and they're looking to exploit it. And so I think... Bannon, for example, is using it to he, – he's reacting to this as a nationalist. So he's seeing it as a threat to the United States and he's trying to – you know, he's, he's making these kind of bipartisan gestures because he wants to, he wants to have fighting this virus be a kind of a, a, a nationalist sort of enterprise. And he's also trying to set up a conflict with, with China, with the People's Republic of China. Out on the neo-Nazi far right, you know, these guys, accelerationists, for example, want to do what they can to ensure the collapse of liberal democracies, which they see as decadent. And, you know, so they're looking to leverage this crisis to, to, to introduce greater instability into, you know, the system, as they call it. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that kind of frame of mind is, is my concern at the moment. The, the people who are actually have a pretty decent analysis of the, the scope of this crisis and are thinking about ways to, to, to sort of exploit it, to undermine whatever democracy and, and, and rights that, that folks in, in the US have. Did you happen to see Curtis Yarvin's uh, coronavirus take? I did not. I would love to hear about it, though. Uh, it's, it's weird because uh, it starts off... Who's what? Curtis Ken? Uh, Moldbug. Uh, he's uh-huh. he's sort of an alt right blogger, I guess. Uh, Jason, would you say he's considered like one of their philosophers, perhaps? Yeah, I would say he's the yeah he's the the sort of figurehead, intellectual figurehead in in, in a lot of ways of the neo reactionary movement for sure. Yeah. He he threw something up on Medium about the coronavirus, uh, which starts off sort of reasonably, which is you know talking about how serious it is and 
I think notes that, you know, there are people on the right who aren't taking it seriously or, you know, who think it's a psyop or a hoax or whatever. And he goes into a lot of detail about, you know, just how dreadful it is and then gets to the point where he suggests that what we're going to need to do is suspend democracy and have some sort of special coronavirus leader for a while. And it's like, it's very similar to, I think, his normal, we need to suspend democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Just with a bit of virus tacked on. I mean, it is it is a worry at the moment, I guess, that, you, you know, my sort of, you know, I've, I've largely been calm and tried to occupy myself with work, but my, my overall frame of mind, you know, veers around a little. And some days I look around and see all the mutual aid projects and, and see, you know, the way communities are responding and also see, like, for example, subnational governments, like the states here in the United States, are just kind of like bracketing the federal government and finding ways to cooperate. And that that makes me think that there is a sort of, you know, counterweight to whatever the federal government is doing. There's a sort of institutional counterweight as well as a sort of fundamental instinct down at the community level for people to get together and help each other. But, yeah, I mean, national emergencies where, you know, you have emergency legislation that allows you to sort of order people inside for an indeterminate length of time, <laughs> you know, that obviously there are historical pathways that, that we wouldn't want to kind of go any further down. And yeah, like, obviously, like there's a public health, there, there is, there is a kind of authoritarianism abroad at the moment. And, and I think in Australia, you saw pretty draconian penalties put in place before people had actually been given a chance to cooperate with a clearly spelled out set of guidelines. And and so it's everywhere. And you know you don't even need to go to Hungary where, you know, democracy has basically been swept aside. He's he's Orban's taken this as an opportunity to just kind of like introduce a fascist state, more or less. I mean, I don't know what else to call it. So so these kinds of people Bannon's not as smart as he thinks he is, but he's 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 pretty smart relative to the Trump movement. And there's an obvious opportunity for those kind of guys here to uh, sort of roll back the liberal international order, roll back, you know, the global economy and, and whatever we might think of, of, of that global capitalist economy. I mean, these guys are not rolling it back <laughs> in order to bring about something more just, right? Is it a question of rolling it back or, uh, I guess, uh, recommending a certain form of restructuring? Yeah. Could, could, why, why don't you say more? Because uh, there's a recent, well, I think it was published in late, March, an interview with Chomsky on the subject, and he was, you know, basically arguing that we, that, uh, you know, a neoliberal capitalist order is uh, compatible with uh, highly authoritarian regimes. And in fact, he, you know, it's a longer argument, but he looks back at its, you know, if you look at the doctrines of the so-called neoliberals in you know, on Mises and Hayek and so on and so forth, um, they, they well, Mises welcomed uh, fascist uh, governments in Europe, uh, not because they were, on the basis that they were uh, smashing organised labour, mm. which was the real danger to uh, the rule of untrammeled uh, capitalism or, you know, uh, was the one of the few political sources of opposition to Capital. So, I mean, I get your point, but I, I often find that the the kinds of and the extent to which that there's this the back and forth between opening and closing borders of one sort or another. These are often strategic, tactical questions that don't go to the core questions of what determines 
uh, a capitalist order, I suppose. That, 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 that's a really fair point. I mean, I think you know, for, for whatever my assessment of this is worth, I think that what Bannon's, Bannon really does think that he's promoting a set of ideas which are about bringing manufacturing back onshore. You know, it's it's kind of like a producer's thing almost. Mm. But yeah, I mean, put a, a set of ideas out there into the world, and um, you know, people are going to implement them in all sorts of ways. And 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 I agree that uh, with with what you say that there are there there are examples like like Chile, right? Like where neoliberal reform and authoritarianism kind of went went uh, very obviously went hand in hand. I mean, the interesting thing. I guess is seeing people in Australia, for example, brought uh, who, who who wouldn't maybe normally have to deal with it, brought face to face with what a neoliberal welfare system looks like. And you know, in my hopeful moments, I wonder if those kinds of experiences will actually lead people, when this is done, to sort of demand that those are become more like services that that, that help people out when the economy doesn't, you know, tosses them aside for, through no fault of their own or you know, here, I mean, I, I just, I just really hope that people come out of this really wanting, as a priority, a, a sort of some kind of system of universal health care in this country, because people are already getting thirty thousand dollars U.S. dollar bills for coronavirus treatment. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 insane. So, so that's that's my hopeful moments. But yeah, I mean, like, there's obviously. What else is happening now? I mean, a whole pool of desperate people now exists who don't have jobs, who aren't sure where their future jobs will come from, who maybe are employed in, you know, sectors of the economy that just won't come back in the same way. There are Amazon workers going on strike and demanding, you know, adequate safety provisions while they work. There are grocery workers doing the same thing. There, There's a lot of stuff happening and I'm not going to say it's spontaneous because I'm sure it requires a lot of organizing and work, but, but you know, it's not, it's, it's outside the, the, the sort of formal labor movement in the United States. So, so I see those as reasons to hope, but I also see a very precarious situation with millions, literally probably millions of people at this point who don't have income and can't buy food and are reliant on charity, basically, because there isn't much of a safety net. And, you know, how much power those people are going to have relative to a state that's enforcing emergency powers. Yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> okay. Well, one, one question I have in terms of the effect of the virus on Trump is in, in terms of uh, locating or understanding precisely what or who constitutes his support base and to what extent yeah. they themselves are especially vulnerable or not to this uh, health an economic crisis. So it, it, to the extent that they are, I mean, I guess I wonder, you know, are many of them, you know, how profoundly affected are they and is it any more or less than the general population? Yeah, it's really tough to it's really tough to know at the moment. I think the immediate, the people most immediately affected, basically any employee, any service industry employee in the United States, so like, People who work in restaurants and bars, people who work in most retail, um, except for grocery stores and, and chemists, even a lot of healthcare workers, weirdly, because, um, you, you know, emergency room, one of the phenomena of this thing is that emergency room visits go way down because people aren't driving around and going out drinking on a Saturday night and whatever, you know, do, 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 mm. doing the kinds of stuff that, that people do. And so they're not. 
They're not winding up in the emergency room. So you're actually seeing hospital layoffs to, to a really huge extent. But like there's there's obviously, yeah, the working class is uh, the working class in the service industries are the ones who who were immediately suffering. But, you know, their employers are, are more like the Trump, the core of the Trump base and the, and the same people who've voted Republican forever. They're suburban. They're wealthier than the median American. You know, they own a fast food franchise or a used car lot or whatever. And all of those businesses now are basically, you know, they've received some aid from the Trump administration, but ultimately Trump doesn't care much about those people either. And and so they're going to be in a ton of trouble if this lockdown goes for, you know, a couple of months. And also, you know, it, it is true it's been overstated, uh, you know, in, in terms of how crucial this sort of demographic was to his, his victory. But it is it is certainly true that uh, lower income white people in rural areas, you know, voted for Trump. And, you know, they're, they're really in a lot of trouble right now. And I think that the main political question in the United States over the next six months, let's say, is whether the Republican Party can convince those people that actually the blame does not belong with the president, it belongs with the Chinese Communist Party. And that, that is the, the relentless message that you're starting to see hammered by all kinds of people across the right, and, and in the Australian right as well, by the way. There are a bunch of people who've taken this opportunity to write op-eds this week about about China and, and how we need to confront them or, you know, stop pussyfooting around. Um, Chris Ullman wrote something. Uh, Greg Sheridan wrote something. You know, you, you've got these these folks making those arguments already. And, look, I have no sympathy or uh, allegiance or any kind of time for the Chinese state. Uh, but <laughs> Western politicians knew about this from January at the latest when Hubei was knocked down, uh, locked down and no one... It seems to me that all of all, you know, in the U.S. and Australia, which are the countries I follow the, the most closely, no one did anything in January. No one really did anything in February. You know, while while it was while it was um, setting Europe alight, what did they think was going to happen? That argument will be crucial, and I just don't know if the Democrats or the Australian Labor Party, for that matter, are, are capable of getting to the position of moral clarity where, where you're able to make that argument. We have a, an election in the United States, a presidential election in, uh, what, seven months or so. Yeah. Um, so the other question that occurs to me is one would think that this, given the nature of the crisis and it being centred upon health and the US not having a public health care system to speak of, a Democratic candidate who openly endorsed one would presumably uh, gain some support. So... But I'm not sure that, that, that Biden, who is the most likely candidate, or the Democratic Party as a whole is really, I mean, maybe it is, but I'm not aware of it being, making a strong position uh, using this crisis to, to, to make that case and to actually commit themselves to a public health care system. So what, what can you say about uh, those on the other side of the, uh, the aisle? I don't know. I mean, it's a really delicate and interesting moment. I think there's going to be a massive constituency really, really soon for a more substantive and effective social safety net. And that means healthcare. It means, you know, unemployment benefits. It means your food security, you know, is, is, is a problem right now. 
And so the Democrats are captured to some extent by a, a particular faction of corporate America who are their major donors. And, you know, they, they historically, especially recently, have resisted any kind of making any kind of commitment to or thoroughgoing commitment to, to that kind of safety net. But, you know, I mean, it's kind of like you can get dragged into that if, if, if there's sufficient sustained pressure. And, and if, if capitalism itself is at stake, I guess that, that adds some, some motivation. And I think that's what, like, you know, that's, that's what people don't say about the, the New Deal, that it was actually a product of a really constrained set of choices and, and the product of someone who was, who is really trying to save capitalism and not necessarily trying to secure the individual welfare of every citizen. And so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of, there's, there's an opening here. For sure, I think for the Democrats who don't have shown that they don't have any ideas that they've generated themselves for how to address this, they're still talking about means-tested welfare and all that, all that kind of stuff, all that third-way stuff. They just haven't adjusted to to what's going on. But but there is there is a there is a chance that they might be dragged kicking and screaming by circumstances and by just sheer popular anger into. Into, into, you know, doing something decent, but who knows? I would have thought that one of the dangers of, um, well, depending on your perspective, but uh, as you indicated in, uh, I think, uh, one of your recent uh, articles in reference to Bannon in particular, their preparedness to endorse those sorts of measures to secure, better secure uh, the working population of the United States from the uh, unconstrained free market forces. So it may be the case that the right or elements of the right will actually be able to and are in a position to assume those policies and steal uh, that ground from what would otherwise be considered a, you know, a nominally left position and you develop some kind of, uh, you know, quasi-red-brown politics, and yeah. which would also draw in elements of, yeah, the nominal left. I mean, like using lowercase letters, you know, I mean, I, I think it's just simple, simplest to call it national socialism, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't mean to, I, I don't mean to exaggerate or, or, or try to, you know, um, make, make kind of claims that, that are, you know, anyway, I don't, I don't mean to exaggerate, but, but that's what, that, that's kind of like the vision I, I would say that Bannon has. It's, it's, it's a kind of like, it's it's racist in the sense that it wants it, it's obsessed with immigration for, right across the southern border. But you know, I think if Bannon was left to implement it, it would be a kind of civic nationalism in the sense that he would want to address anyone who's who's a citizen at least to some extent. But yeah, it would be like let's look after American citizens as a part of a nationalist project where we confront you know this satanic uh, Chinese regime who's who's our challenger, who's our main challenger, who are looking to displace us as the, 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 the dominant superpower or whatever. That's what it is. It's national socialism. It's like, let's, 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 let's extend welfare to our citizens. Let's look after them. And in return, we're going to ask them to kind of support this, this uh, renewed, I suppose, Cold War, really. And you're absolutely right. I mean, that is seductive. And, and God, uh, a nominally leftist podcast, I guess, had Bannon on as a guest over the weekend. And then you had someone from another leftist podcast saying that he was, 
you know, that that Bannon was somehow less dangerous than uh, uh, than Joe Biden. Um, and I, I think there isn't people on a lot of people influential voices on the left aren't thinking about how seductive that discourse is and how it's absolutely not going to wind up. It's it's got nothing to do with justice, nothing to do with equality, nothing to do with binding communities and and creating solidarity. It's it's just about war and, and division. We'll see if people wake up to that. But yeah, I absolutely agree with you that it's a huge danger and there is a kind of seductive quality to this sort of if you've got a better term than, than lowercase national socialism, I'm happy to hear it. But, you know, there, there's a seductiveness to this because it's populist. It's opposed to the the liberal establishment and the conservative establishment. It's it's kind of promising a, a sort of welfare. It's it's opposed to, at least on the surface, opposed to, you know, neoliberal global capitalism. So So it's like ticking a lot of these boxes that some people on the populist left want ticked and... You know, it's it's not entirely forthcoming about the rest of the project. So, Jason, on that cheery note, we're going to have to go. Thanks very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, that's all we've got time for, Andy. Uh, we're going to have a few more questions for Jason on the podcast version of this, though, if people want to check that out at 3cr.org.au slash yeah-nah-passeran. Global Intifada is up next. See you later. See you next week. Uh, Jason, I was wondering if you could uh, speak a bit about the role that a conspiracy theory is playing in how all of this is playing out. In your uh, article in The Guardian about how the right is responding, you noted that uh, Candace Owens, for example, is sort of uh, claiming that some of the victims of the coronavirus are just a complete hoax. I guess uh, the implication is that they don't exist or that... uh, the coronavirus, big coronavirus is trying to pump up the numbers by including uh, people dying of other things. But then on sort of, I guess, on the other end of the scale, you've had the case of the uh, neo-Nazi who was uh, busted before he could uh, blow up a hospital. And you had the train derailment in California as well, where someone tried to run a train into a hospital ship because he thought there was something nefarious going on. I guess somewhere in the middle, you've got 5G towers being burnt down. Uh, what do you make of all of that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that um, you know what I'm seeing from almost every government agency here in the US, from 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 FEMA, you know, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, who are kind of nominally one of the agencies in charge of the national response, right down to state uh, governments, and and even at the county level, everyone is saying. Don't listen to misinformation. Here are the facts. Like it's it's you're seeing in the government response that there's clearly a huge problem here, which is that people are being kind of lied to, and and they're accepting those lies and and acting accordingly. So so there are different levels. I mean, there are people who deny that the virus, you know, is any worse than the flu. And so, like Bill Mitchell, who's an uh, a kind of arch MAGA guy on Twitter. Um, you know, has a big Twitter Twitter account and a podcast. He's he's like been pumping out all these misleading statistics to say it's not it's not true. And and Candace Owens as well, you know, who you mentioned, she's she's just kind of been like she's pivoted from saying the virus is made up to saying like the deaths are, are a hoax. And and she's asking people to pass her information, which shows that you know that the people who've been recorded as coronavirus victims are not actually dying from that. 
then you've got people who accept that the virus is real, but who are saying like, oh, it's a bioweapon that, that, that China deliberately created, or it's real, kind of, but the government are using it as a, the basis of a psyop to kind of like, you know, take our freedoms. You know, these are just ways of ignoring the most obvious story here, which is that Western governments knew about this from January at the latest, and mostly they didn't do anything to plan uh, for it or prepare for it. And, you know, they were all making it up on the fly from kind of like mid-March onwards. Whatever the People's Republic of China did, you know, they, they had a couple of months and they didn't they didn't do anything with it. So, you know, anything that can kind of distract people from that, I guess, is welcome, especially to incumbents. But yeah, I mean, more broadly about conspiracy theory, I mean, I, I just think that the, the 5G thing is a really good example of how I mean, I, I know that you're a, uh, a, a, a scholar of uh, QAnon, Cam. <laughs> mm. I, I just feel like the thing that we used to call QAnon is almost now like this sort of huge conspiracy thinking machine that can just absorb anything that happens into it. And just it's just this kind of huge kaleidoscopic conspiracy theory that just kind of includes everything now. And and the five G stuff is is all up in those kind of networks and communities now. I mean, I maybe you don't agree, um, Jason. Can you um, explain to the listener, or the listeners, what the significance of five G is in this context? Oh, okay. So, well, you know, five G is the next you know protocol uh, for mobile phone uh, communication. Most of us are on four G now, but five G. You know, it's it, it uses a different part of the spectrum. It, it 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 transfers data more efficiently. Blah 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 blah. It's just you know better. And it's long been the subject of conspiracy theories about, um, you know, like Wi-Fi. I guess that maybe it causes cancer. Maybe it's you know mind control rays. Uh, maybe it's toxic or whatever. Uh, and that hasn't been helped by the fact that. The Chinese company Huawei, which has a you know a close relationship with the Chinese state, which is also a major uh, constructor of five G infrastructure internationally, has authentically been you know caught up in uh, scandals in Canada um, and elsewhere, where you know it seems like they have been trying to put back doors into telecommunications infrastructure so that the, the Chinese state has opportunities to do surveillance and what have you. Uh, but now, to put it simply, um, the, the whole 5G thing has been smashed together with coronavirus. And, and there's an idea that is frighteningly prevalent that, that 5G uh, actually causes coronavirus. And that is seen as something that the People's Republic of China has done and is responsible for. And so, yeah, I, I guess we don't, we have to be slightly hesitant to confidently characterize the sabotage of 5G infrastructure that's happened in the UK. Because I, 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 the last time I checked, we don't actually know what that person's motives were. But it is striking that it happened at a time when there's a surge in conspiracy theories on every social media platform. But, but you know, Facebook is crucial here, which are, you know, positing this connection between 5G and coronavirus. And, 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 and you know, it's it's not going to be surprising if it does turn out that that's why 5G towers are being um, sabotaged in the UK. And I would expect that to happen in other countries as well as this thing kind of drags on. 
What's uh, Alex Jones's position? Uh, well, you know, he's in a tough spot. <laughs> he's in a tough spot. I mean, anyone who's a Trump supporter, as he is, he's an arch Trump supporter. You know, he's he's going to die in a ditch for Trump. And and Trump's own position has kind of moved around enough so that anyone who's trying to uh, shadow his position is is going to seem to have been slightly inconsistent as well. I mean, Trump <laughs> started out denying it pretty much and then, uh, you know, eventually came around to saying it was a serious matter and then backed off a bit and then said, you know, maybe maybe it's fine because we've got hydroxychloroquine and, <laughs> you know, he's he's kind of been all over the shop. Alex Jones has kind of wound up in this position where, so the last time I checked, <laughs> his his position was there is a virus but it's a Chinese bioweapon and the deep state is going to use this to, 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 to destroy the Republic. So everyone but Trump is kind of implicated, I suppose, in the conspiracy. So, you know, that's, that's a professional right there. <laughs> Some, I, I, I understand that he's lost a few court cases recently. He has um, struggled to maintain a, a you know a large social media platform is he is his voice less important than it was uh, a year or two or uh, you know prior to um, Trump's uh, presidency yeah I think so I mean I think he peaked probably in 2016 2017 at one point there he was a major almost surrogate really for Trump he had you know millions of subscribers on YouTube he had a really big platform on Facebook and Twitter as well. And then I think, you know, after Charlottesville, <laughs> uh, he was just one of the guys in the sites and lost a lot of those platforms. He's also lost a few. I mean, he's also syndicated on radio, but he's lost a little bit of that syndication as these lawsuits, which involve incredibly bad optics, go go down the pipeline. Look, yeah, he's he's less influential. He still worries me because he still does have a sizable audience and he's probably become even more radical, you know, rhetorically um, since he got deplatformed and the stuff he's, his remaining audience is getting now is pretty undiluted. I don't know what that guy who tried to ram a ship with a train was listening to. I mean, he sounded maybe more like a QAnon guy. I'd probably defer to Cam here, but... Um, you know, it's possible that these conspiracy broadcasters are still uh, bringing vulnerable individuals to do really silly things. Yeah, I think my, my read on Alex Jones would be at the same time as this is being deplatformed, which was all to do with you know, his stuff from 2012, really, about Sandy Hook. Yeah. At the same time as he was doing that, the conspiracy world had sort of moved in this QAnon direction, which he, that was a, a train that he didn't get on or he couldn't get on. They had their own sort of QAnon figure on uh, the Alex Jones show for a while, like coming on and decoding their own secret messages from the president. Uh, but then the, I think they were denounced by the, the so-called real QAnon and uh, that might have uh, all come together to diminish his influence a bit. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, we could talk about, you know, how conspiracy thinking used to be uh, the product of guys like like Alex Jones, um, you know, and, and his predecessors. And, you know, they, they were kind of 
at the center of these subcultures that were like the celebrities at the center of them. And now it's very, the creation and, and, and promotion of conspiracy theories is much more spread out across a movement, I guess, which is really interesting. Yeah. Alex Jones, he denounced, I think he had a shot at Q last week. I didn't listen to the full text of that. I just saw a reporting on it. I didn't listen to the full recording, but it seems like he's actually been put in this position where he feels like he has to, um, you know, directly criticize the, the QAnon stuff. And, and, and it, it all sort of suggests that, yeah, his thing is kind of a little obsolete in an era where people are, are producing this kind of like stuff collaboratively, these overarching conspiracy theories collaboratively. Um, it's, it's a very strange thing. I mean, that's the, the question that we were talking about just before the show started was a, I mean, what is it going to take to to shake those people out of that and to shake the, you know, just the general MAGA people out of their thing? Like, how bad can it get before the QAnon types think, oh, maybe there isn't a plan? Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know. I mean, I've, you know, I thought about a similar question a lot when I was covering wildfires in Northern California a couple of years back. And, you know, um, I was just... I was just vox popping people at one point and saying, like, you know, has this changed your view of climate change? And people were saying no. And I, I, since then, I've kind of even wondered if it's the right, ever the right question to ask, like whether a horrible traumatic experience um, can change people's political opinions. I mean, I think that this is a horrible disease, and lots of people are going to get really sick, and it's going to be really awful, and. That is the kind of thing that changes people on an individual level, but that, that kind of change isn't predictable. And that's, that's a function of, of kind of trauma, really. Um, so, you know, we don't want that. I, is it going to change people's minds? I don't know. I, look, I think that I, 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 I kind of tend to think that people's minds are made up. Um, you know, if you're still a Trump supporter now, um, I can't imagine what would what ever would change, change that. And it's just going to be a question of numbers. And look, I don't want to get into ill-fated predictions here, but um, even before this hit, uh, and, and he's managing it really badly, and the small poll, poll bump he got has dis- appears to have dissipated already, and he was already very unpopular. I mean, he was unpopular in November 2016, and in some ways, you know, this few hundred thousand voters in a few swing states, I don't know if I want to say it was a fluke, but... Um, he he was he was fortunate. I, I I thought even before this hit that he was becoming steadily more unpopular. I didn't see where he was going to get new voters, and I still don't. And a lot of his voters are going to die, and and that's an unpredictable thing too, because Democrats will as well. But certainly don't see where he's going to get new voters from. I, I would hope that some people actually look at what's happened. And look at the way he's managed this and look at like, uh, I don't know, what looks like a, a, a serious corruption around the distribution of medical resources. Uh, and, and the president in the middle of a pandemic proposing the, the use of unproven treatments. You know, I, I would hope people look at that and go, wow, this is, this is not good. Do you think there's any significant shift of opinion within the Republican Party where things have developed to such an extent where he's, um, you know, uh, obviously uh, 
totally inept, to put it mildly, um, espousing quack cures that they might think, well, we can, you know, is there is there capacity within the Republican Party for opposition to Trump to manifest? Because if you look at the results of the process of nominating him as president, there's been almost none. But I'm wondering if there aren't more senior figures or are there senior figures within Republicans who are thinking, well, you know, we can no longer afford to be on the uh, Trump train. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think I've been thinking about, and, and this is not necessarily, if this is not a welcome, it, not necessarily, it is not at all a welcome prospect. But I've been thinking about whether over a certain body count and at a certain level of instability, whether, um, you know, the national security state might actually at least find a way to sideline the guy. I, I just don't know. Um, the pressure valve at the moment seems to be the states just doing what they can to, to, to make things work. But yeah, I, I, I think that if the country, if the country really seriously started to fall apart, um, I, I wonder whether it would even be beyond the, the gift of the Republican party at that point. I don't know. Um, it's concerning time, <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, the Republican Party today, uh, the, the the majority, uh, a Supreme Court majority, including two judges that Trump appointed, uh, made a ruling that said that even though it's a pandemic, the Wisconsin primary tomorrow, there's not going to be any kind of emergency uh, postal voting. You know, people are actually going to have to show up to the polling booth to to, to vote and, and and that's voter suppression and it's voter suppression endorsed by a Supreme Court that Trump the twenty percent of which <laughs> or, or whatever it is appointed and um, so they're getting what they want it would have to take a lot of instability and a lot of you know a, a significant and obvious threat to some kind of interest of theirs for for them to act I mean they 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 know who this guy is. They they know what he what he is and what he's doing and and the damage he's doing. And it just doesn't matter. It suits them. I guess on a slightly different topic, uh, did you see that the uh, U.S. government has designated its first white supremacist uh, foreign terrorist organization? Yes, indeed. Because um, there, there was a lot of speculation that it was going to be your mates at the base. Yeah, so according to the Times, and, and you know, they have better um, national security sources than me, let's say, um, you know, they were actually going out of their way to find an organisation where there would be no uh, non-US members. <laughs> well, no non-US members because then, I mean, the problem that the FBI has is that they at least have to pay lip service to the First Amendment. So they're not allowed yeah. to... You know, list domestic groups. You can't criminalise Americans for holding particular opinions. Um, you know, as far as Americans concerned, at least officially and publicly, they can only go after criminal behaviour and they always insist that they're not monitoring groups. Um, no one really believes that is, is, is true in practical terms, but, you know, th th there's a certain sort of um, etiquette, I suppose, that they have to adhere to and... And, it, and, and that kind of stuff does matter when it comes to prosecutions, you know. So even if they're monitoring people in a way that pushes the First Amendment, you know, they're going to have trouble with those prosecutions if it, if, if it emerges that it's been based on surveillance of a group rather than uh, investigation of criminal behaviour. And, and, and so that's, that's basically what the Times said. They've tried to find a group where 
There would be no kind of First Amendment complications um, and, and no Americans involved so that they wouldn't have to um, kind of worry about that stuff. And that sounds kind of plausible to me, but I'm sure they started looking for a group in Russia. Um, yeah. And I'm sure- I came up with the, the Russian imperial movement. Yeah. Who I had to look up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I had heard of them, but, like, you know, I had never – I hadn't thought about them beyond hearing about them. You know, but I'm sure that this is a kind of intended as a, as a kind of message to Russia and, and, and reflects a belief on the part of the FBI, true or not, that, you know, Russia is somehow involved in – um, sponsoring or assisting white supremacist groups that are advocating terror in the United States. Um, and that sure does um, kind of bring the base to mind, doesn't it? <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, they didn't go after Azov Battalion, you know, which That, that would have been – that was my guess for what it was going to be if it wasn't going to be, you know, the base. There's also some speculation that maybe Adam Waffen, just based on the fact that it had these offshoots in other countries, might be – the one, but I was thinking those were maybe unlikely because they were US-based, ostensibly. Yeah, but if you think about that that sort of constitutional complication, it does actually make sense. Um, yeah, but then, it, yeah, my guess would have been Azov. Yeah, but Azov, I suppose, is actually has had US members and, and some sort of US connection. And also, I mean, I don't know. Um, it's in the Ukraine, isn't it? it it's, 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 it's in Ukraine. It's not in Russia. Um I don't know. You know, who knows if that's a factor? I mean, probably that that they're going after. They're not going to go after a US ally. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, look. Um, I think that you know, organisations like the SPLC and the ADL, you know, the sort of um, more mainstream NGO, NGOs that are, um, uh, you know, hu- human rights, civil rights NGOs are are happy that I reported that on the weekend as well, that they're happy that the FBI is giving sustained attention to these groups. I guess as a reporter, it's my job to worry about what the implications and precedents are here. What, what does it mean that they're now, they've now expanded beyond, I mean, the vast majority of the groups listed as international terrorist groups by the FBI are jihadi groups. And now, and now it's white supremacist groups and, I guess who's next? I mean, a lot of the writers I read and respect on uh, the danger of the far right say that one of the principal dangers is that they elicit crackdowns from the state and and those crackdowns are then extended to people who have nothing to do with white supremacy who are involved in other kinds of political groups, radical or not, Um, uh, and and crackdowns get generalised. I guess that would be my one concern. Uh, One question would be whether or not this is functioning as a sort of um, message to the Russian government and, and what the implications of that are. And, and yeah, another is, I guess, a sort of implicit admission that there's not much they can do about groups that are that have some sort of US ties, um, apart from, I guess, investigating the criminal behaviour. Maybe that's all they should do anyway, but, but it seems like this listing is a kind of admission of that, that we can't actually... If, if, if any groups kind of touch the US, we can't really define them as a terrorist organisation. Um, Jason, speaking of the base, has there been any further developments um, since the beginning of the year? And also speaking of Russia, given that the uh, one of the central figures apparently lives in Russia. 
Uh, yeah, well, so there was a um, there was a good story in uh, New York Magazine last week. A very uh, intrepid reporter over there had um, built on the reporting that that uh, we did and the BBC did, and actually gone around and talked to people who knew the guy and banged on a few doors. And um, uh, this is this is uh, um, Ronaldo Nazaro, aka Norman Spear, the founder of the base. People who knew him at college and and school and said he was a kind of um, Mellow stoner who was into grunge <laughs> back in the nineties, <laughs> uh, and also was a member for a time of the the DSA. Believe it or not, it's Benny Bray. Perhaps um, changed uh, somewhat after he served overseas. You know, in in the army it seems, although that wasn't that detail wasn't particularly nailed down. But yeah, it seems like a very strange kind of story. I think since I last spoke to you, there have been more arrests of people who are in Adam Waffen, and at least one or two of them had were double patched in the base at least for a time. So, you know, I did I was, see this week that um, they've started releasing some of those guys as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for Rona reasons, they're they're tr- you know, U.S. attorneys are trying as hard as they can to keep those guys inside, and they're pulling out all the stops. But sometimes it just doesn't work if it's a non-violent offence, and um, you know, um, the, the the person meets the criteria for release um, during a pandemic. So there's a lot of talk on Telegram from accelerationists and eco-fascist groups about how this is their opportunity. But um, I really think that those arrests. Plus a lot of the journalism that was done, plus uh, the work that um, anti-fascist activists did, has really put a lot of pressure on those movements. And a lot of those guys, it, it's kind of deprived, I think, the movement of probably its best and char- most charismatic organizing talent. And um, I'm not sure where that accelerationist movement is actually at at this point and how uh, coherent or effective it is. Now, the problem is, of course, that there is still very much uh, an atmosphere, I suppose, on Telegram, you know, constituted by a whole bunch of channels and accounts that might only have one guy running them, but which are urging, which are sort of trying to black pill people and urging them on to acts of lone wolf terrorism. And, you know, only takes one guy, right? That's still a problem. Uh, uh, but I, I feel like there are other bigger worries at the moment, which are just about the stakes in this country on any kind of uh, protracted civil unrest, you know, just given the amount of guns that are here and, and, and the sort of people who will try and be trying to see that as an opportunity and take advantage of it to, to promote, to, to pursue their own political projects. Um, and so like militia groups and uh, just, just the Trump people really as well, just, just the Republicans um, who, who may find ways to exploit the situation. Uh, they're, they're more worrying to me, I guess, at the moment than the remaining accelerationists who just seem more like an internet thing than they ever have in some ways. Um, the other tendency, that I, I, which has been described as the movementist tendency represented by figures like uh, Richard Spencer and so on, they appear to be in some degree of disarray as well. And we have the example of um, the former leader of the National Socialist Movement and uh, uh, Matthew Heimbach from the uh, Traditionalist Worker Party, both declaring themselves to no longer be right-wing radicals and so on and so forth. 
and given the general, I guess, context of the impossibility almost of conducting street mobilizations, where do you think, do you think that they can revive under these circumstances or is their road kind of, uh, you know, finished for the time being? My, my, my gut and, and from what I can see of the trends says no. It says that that, that upsurge on the explicitly, you know, um, white nationalist far right is, is really, you know, they, they, they've been struck a lot of blows since 2017, but, but especially in the last year. And yeah, they can't, you know, summer marching season isn't looking great. You know, their, their crowds were declining anyway. You know, but but the problem is that I think they did succeed in changing the discourse and changing the the sort of taboos and, and, and what it's possible to say in US politics. And they did a really good job in some ways as well of making uh, the Trump administration seem less radical, relatively speaking. Now they've sort of changed the way in which the FBI is talking about enforcement of political groups. And yeah, I mean, they, they, I, I feel like they actually achieved quite a lot. I, I mean, I think they, they, they made uh, anti-Semitism kind of, you know, permissible in a political sense, more, more, more so than it has been probably since the end of the second world war. I think that that whole idea of demographic replacement is pretty mainstream now. Conspiracy theories like the whole, uh, cultural Marxism thing are pretty mainstream now. Uh, anti anti fascism, you know, which is which really was more um, almost entirely confined to the far right before this is now sort of, you know, the president is 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 yelling about anti far. I think they have changed right wing politics a lot. Uh, the fact is that the Republicans are, are, are going to be in in government nationally, you know, about half the time at least. And, and so if you change the Republican Party, you, you kind of, you know, that's, that's, it gives you quite a lot of leverage over the country. So, yeah, that's, but I think like, yeah, the actual, I don't know, what do we want to call them? Um, issue entrepreneurs, uh, the actual groups and individuals that, that push this, you know, throughout the late teens, I suppose, uh, you know, are, 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 are in, in steep decline. Uh, and and probably, you know, going back underground really in, in, at various, not all at the same pace, but um, all they've got left for recruitment is Telegram. You know, they don't have free run of social media anymore. I'm aware that a lot of groups are simply claiming to have disbanded and are just now confined to encrypted chats with the people they've already recruited. The FBI's on their case and is actively looking at these groups. And, and that kind of thing trickles down to local law enforcement eventually. So, yeah, I think, like, they had this kind of moment from about 2015, you know, solidly to late 2017, more and more constricted from 2018 on, and, and really got hammered from about October, September, October last year. And I, and I just think that moment maybe has dissipated but but that like white nationalists white nationalist ideology has 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 kind of like infiltrated the the, the ideology of the ostensibly mainstream right to a much greater extent than it, than it had five years ago well I think we might actually leave it there okay cool on another cheery note yeah cool. yeah um we do, we doubled I mean, down that I mean the, the question is I suppose you know 
if there are still elections, that's not electorally appealing in, in a country that's heading in, in, in the apparent demographic direction that the United States is. Um, so that's the problem. But, you know, we'll see. Empty your pockets, taking up Congress purses, watches. I'm the rubber press. 